a huge challenge for companies as you're building a new product is you have this environment that isn't real life, right? It's like this, it's, it's controlled and small and you know everyone on the product and everyone using the product is using it because they're somehow connected to people working at the company and they want to be helpful. So they're testing it and they're using it the way exactly you want it to be used. And then when you release it to the whole world, people do things that you never expected. That's Kevin Tao general partner at Spark Capital who focuses on early stage investments. Kevin has spent the last 20 years building startups that have defined new markets in graphical computing, messaging, mobile technology, and social media. He was previously the VP of Business and Corporate Development at Twitter, and then joined one of the Twitter co-founders, Biz Stone, at Jelly as its COO. What Kevin is talking about is the excitement and challenges of building new products, something that he still gets just as excited about as an investor. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano, and today we're speaking with Kevin Tao, a general partner at Spark Capital, where he's led investments in startups like Lola, Medium, Haven, and Aura. Before Spark, Kevin spent two decades building startups like Twitter, where he was first the director of mobile products, as well as the VP of business and corporate development later on through its IPO. He was also then the COO of Jelly Industries, a search engine Q&A platform created by BizStone. Kevin joins us to share his story, how he got into startups by cold calling his first job, what it was like building Twitter from 2008 through to its IPO, what it was like building Jelly, how he transitioned to being a VC, and much more. So let's get started. Hey, Kevin. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. The honor is all ours. We're excited to have the chance to speak with you and learn more about you know, your career in startups and what you're currently doing as part of the team over at Spark Capital. But before we dive into that, can you tell us more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in Silicon Valley. So one of the few natives. Um, my father was actually an entrepreneur and started a variety of software companies in the kind of IT infrastructure space. So I grew up around startups and people being entrepreneurs and raising money from venture capitalists. And it just seemed from a young age that that was a fun way to go about life and uh, a fun adventure, kind of making, making your own way and creating things and building companies and doing it the way you want to do it. So, uh, I kind of uh, figured that's what I would do when I graduated. I went to university of California at Santa Barbara. And when I graduated, I wanted to work at the coolest tech companies I could find. And at that time, it was kind of the mid 90s. I worked at Silicon Graphics. So an old school uh, Silicon Valley firm that was uh, very cool back in it, in its time, uh, making, you know, inventing graphical computing and uh, workstations and uh, had the best and the brightest uh, engineers and cool mixture between Hollywood and art and uh, science. And it was a cool company. And I worked there for a short time and then I started doing uh, startups after that. Wow. So how did you start your career? What was it like joining Silicon Graphics and rising through the ranks there? 
I started as an intern while I was in college, actually. So I worked there in the summers while I was at school. And I mean, I, I, I never rose through the ranks. I just <laughs> was entry level jobs at SGI doing developer marketing. So trying to get uh, software companies to uh, develop their applications on the uh, SGI platform. And I quickly decided, though, that company was too big and I wanted to work in startups. So uh, my first foray into startups is funny. I found a company in Santa Barbara called Software.com and I cold called them and said, you got to put yourself back in the time frame too. So this is like 1995. So the internet is just getting going. Like Netscape is just a thing and um, the web. And so I see a company called software.com and I'm like, huh, that seems interesting. I want to, uh, I wonder what they're up to. And so I call them and there are six guys and they, I said, I, I just want to, I want to come meet you. I'll work for free, whatever. I just want to be involved. It sounds really cool what you're doing. They were building email software and, um, they're like, all right, come on over, come down and, and chat with us. And, uh, I went down and chatted with them and, and, uh, ended up working there for eight years. I mean, that company software.com that I cold called was founded by a guy named John McFarlane, who after that company went on to found Sonos, uh, the speaker company and that company software.com merged with another company and became open wave and went public in the late 90s and uh, was a huge $14 billion company at one point. So it was like a pretty random first entry into startup world. That's very cool. So fast forward from there, in 2008, you joined Twitter as director of mobile products when there were less than 20 employees. Can you tell us what it was like joining the team there at that time? So it was a similar, um, I got introduced to Twitter actually through my partner at Spark, Bijan, who uh, basically was saying, hey, I'm talking to this company called Twitter. I've met this kid named Jack Dorsey. Uh, you know so much about mobile because I had already spent like eight Plus, I'd always spent like almost 10 years working on mobile and mobile messaging. And so he said, well, you should meet this Jack Dorsey kid because you could probably help them. They've got this problem with SMS costs. They're sending SMS messages all over the world and the carriers and the, and the, um, the third party aggregators are charging them too much money and they don't know what to do. So they want to turn it off. And I was like, they shouldn't turn it off. Let me talk to him. So I ended up talking to Jack and uh, one thing led to another, and then I ended up joining Twitter because I was like, this messaging, this one-to-many messaging application is going to be huge, and we can work with the carriers and get them to not charge us for this messaging because it'll be, you know, mind you, this is still, this is like 2008, so the mobile internet hadn't exactly like taken off yet, and I kind of felt like Twitter would be a great first mobile consumer internet app that a lot of users would, uh, it would be their introduction on using their phone and data services. And so the whole, uh, that was my first foray into how I started working at Twitter. And then within a few years, you became the VP of business and corporate development. So can you tell us what it was like growing the company during those years and taking on an even bigger role? So I started working at, at Twitter, worked there for, let's see, it was probably about two, two, three years at that point and running the mobile teams. So we transitioned from building the SMS services and the mobile web services to iPhone and Android and BlackBerry clients and doing all the, you know, all the, all the fun mobile stuff that uh, was really exciting at the time, building the first iPad client when the iPad came out. And, um, and then I transitioned, yeah, the company, you know, Twitter was growing really quickly and we were, you know, constantly trying to reorganize the company to 
make you know align the teams best possible. And so I took over uh, biz dev and corp dev, which was essentially partnerships. Um, so partnerships with media and entertainment companies, big internet companies like Google and Apple and and uh, corp dev. So ran the M and A teams as well. Wow, that's really cool. And so what were some of the biggest challenges that Twitter had to face during that time? As you mentioned, people were still trying to get used to data plans. The first iPhone was only a year old and people were just starting to really access content online through these devices. So what was that environment like at the time and, and what impact did it have on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, the biggest challenges at that point in time was the company and the service was growing really, really quickly. And uh, Twitter was is still is today used in so many different ways, so many different use cases. Everything from news to companies using it to monitor, you know, the product like almost like a, a, a new age CRM to people using it as a as a search engine to see what uh, real time conversations and talk and people are talking about. There are all these different use cases. I think one of the challenges we faced all along was prioritizing which of the use cases, which of the many exciting popular use cases of Twitter we should apply the resources to and really focus on. So why was that a particular focus for Twitter? I mean, smaller startups should definitely focus on specific areas, of course, but Twitter was growing rapidly. So why did you guys specifically choose to focus only on certain use cases and which ones were sort of front and center at the time? It's a good point. I, I think what I think what we did was try to do as many and keep it as broad as possible. But that's a constant struggle when you want to. One of the other challenges that Twitter always had was that there was a large, very loyal, very rabid user base, but it was not the mass, mass, mass market product that we wanted it to be. I mean, we wanted every single person to be using Twitter every day. To do that, we felt like we had to focus sometimes on some of the more approachable use cases that would bring the most people into using the product every day. Everything was going fine. Everything was great. But we wanted it to, uh, you know, just like anyone, we wanted it to be better. We wanted it to be a universally used application all over the world. And so to do that, I think we uh, there was this constant struggle between doing many things and doing a few things. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And so coming back to the partnerships and growth side of the business, what were some of the biggest projects or partnerships that you were involved in? And how did you approach making those happen? Yeah, I'd say like there was two areas that I think we focused on that was, I think, hugely beneficial. One was Chloe Sladen that ran the media and entertainment part of Twitter and having her focus uh, this great team that she built and building all these relationships with newspapers, TV content creators, TV networks, you know, the whole media and entertainment landscape, I mean, really, really became the area that Twitter, dom you know, dominated. I mean, you couldn't turn on the TV without seeing tweets. You couldn't turn on the TV without seeing Twitter handles. And that's definitely kudos to her and her team's work. That was one of the big areas of partnerships that I thought was super awesome. The other area that I focused a lot on was we built a good relationship with, uh, with Apple. So we were, you know, before Apple kind of opened up their platform more, we were one of the first applications to kind of get built into the iPhone and shipped in the settings of the iPhone. And, and that partnership, I think, was a good step forward in making you know, the service more widely seen by as many people as possible because of the wide adoption of the iPhone. 
wow, that's a pretty big partnership. And I'm sure, you know, it was very complex and, and took a bunch of time to put together. But what was it like generally working with Apple on that level? Were there any challenges you needed to navigate? I think the biggest challenge, I mean, they were really great to work with. I think uh, there was never anything super contentious. I think the, the difference, the fundamental difference is that, you know, internet companies, we live in a world of constant change. I mean, we're deploying new software into the internet service every day. Um, things are constantly changing, APIs are changing, everything's changing. And if you're, uh, you know, an Apple, you build iPhones and you ship iPhones and those iPhones stay in the market for a long period of time. <laughs> so, you know, if you're them, you want, you know, your partners, your these internet company partners to guarantee backwards compatibility and that you won't change things and break things. And I think that's always a, a constant, you know, challenge because it's just not the way we, not the way an internet company thinks instinctively. So from a team and operations perspective, as mentioned, you were one of the first 20 employees and Twitter has grown into a pretty big team. So how do you manage to balance team growth and company growth? Oh, I mean, I mean those, those challenges are super hard in any case, no matter what company you're at. Just teams grow, communication across teams, communication, you know, making sure every employee understands what their role is and what the, you know, how the work that they're doing relates to the bigger vision and strategy. But when you're in these companies like a Twitter that are hyper growth and you're hiring tons and tons of people every week, every month, it gets really, really challenging. And it just puts a lot of pressure on the process and the infrastructure that doesn't exist. So you're doing, you know, you end up making up for it by spending lots and lots of time with the people and talking to the folks and making sure that the interpersonal relationships and communication is there as a baseline. Definitely. So after your time at Twitter, you were then COO at Jelly. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know, what Jelly is all about and what it was like going back to having that startup mindset after having been a part of a much larger company? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really fun to make things. It's, uh, you know, I worked with Biz at Twitter and I love working with him and it's, it's addicting and fun to try and, you know, create new things, right? I mean, you look at consumer behaviors and you think, huh, if we made this tool, we could make, you know, people would enjoy it and it'd be useful. Let's try and make it. That's super, super appealing. And I think that's, I, I think that gets really appealing to folks and it's almost addicting to constantly be trying to invent new things and create new things. And uh, that's what was super appealing. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did you guys approach building and growing that new product? It is, it's exciting. I think one of the things that is a huge challenge for companies as you're building a new product is you start off by building a product and then you use it amongst yourselves, the people in the company. And then you like invite a few friends and you invite a few more friends and you have this, you have this environment that isn't real life, right? It's like this, it's, it's controlled and small and you know everyone on the product and everyone using the product is using it because they're somehow connected to people working at the company and they want to be helpful. So they're testing it and they're using it the way exactly you want it to be used. And then when you release it to the whole world, people do things that you never expected and, and like yeah. they don't have the same incentives and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa oh man, this is really confusing or this, you know, you learn so much 
about how, you know, people who are just coming across it randomly and just want to like try it out for a quick second, they don't have the same motivation and incentives. That's really interesting and a great point to make about product development and really putting your product out there to see how people use it. Yeah, exactly. So after Jelly, you ended up transitioning over to the VC side and joined Spark Capital as a general partner. How did you create the opportunity to join the team there? Well, I've known, so I knew the Spark folks almost since they started the firm. Before I worked at Twitter, I was doing a startup called Buzzwire that they backed. Um, and Bijan Sabay was on the board, and um, that's how I got to know the Spark team. So I've known them forever, and then they were an investor in Twitter, and then they were an investor in Jelly. So, you know, I knew I had a long-standing relationship with, uh, with the folks over there. So when, you know, I was thinking about what to do next, and they were interested in talking to me and seeing if I was interested in being a venture capitalist, it just was a, a natural fit just because the personal relationships were so great. And then everything that, you know, if I was looking at firms, Spark is exactly the kind of firm that I wanted to join. I mean, it's small, not big. It's new school, not old school. They're willing to do crazy things. They invest in all kinds of stuff, not just like, you know, one certain segments. And uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a perfect fit. It's great to hear that story and hear how that relationship evolved. So now two years in, what's it like being an investor? It is super fun experience getting to every day talk to awesome entrepreneurs that have awesome, you know crazy uh, inspiring ideas that are looking to you for feedback and guidance and it's incredibly humbling and exciting and and if you lit if you like if you thrive on the ambiguity of not knowing exactly how it's all going to pan out it's super super fun. I mean the way we work at Spark 2 is we you know we work as a team so we get to you know I'm constantly not just seeing things that come onto my plate to way I see things that are coming onto all my partners plates and so the context shifting across industries and geographies and is really exciting and fun. So what's it like transitioning from running companies and building new products in the case of Jelly to then investing in startups? Are there any things that you've learned over the past few years that you weren't expecting would be part of the process? Well, the first thing that you, I didn't think about going in was it's really, really hard since we can't. So we talk to tons and tons of companies and we meet all kinds of exciting entrepreneurs and companies, and we obviously can't invest in every single one that we talk to. So the decision process of figuring out which ones we want to invest in, and then when we do you know, work through that process and we are not going to invest in certain ones, that having to tell the, the entrepreneur right away that we're, you know, we're not gonna go forward with the investment is incredibly hard and and never gets easy. I don't see how that ever gets easy, but you try and be as helpful as possible in doing it. But that was a surprise. Absolutely. I couldn't imagine. So you mentioned a moment ago that Spark invests in a wide spectrum of companies. But what spaces or technologies are you most interested in? It was funny when I was getting into venture, you know, I was talking to all the VCs I know and, and they were giving you different uh, bits of advice about how they see it. And I, it was interesting to me. There was a lot of different ways to do venture. And some people are very thesis driven in that they have a, a market segment or a thesis about a market and they wanna just 
find every company in that market. And then others are very founder driven and they just want to back amazing teams of entrepreneurs. And, and there's no right or wrong. It's, it's really interesting. There's just as many successful people doing it in a variety of different ways. And what felt more natural to me at the beginning now has been, you know, just being very founder driven. So I meet tons and tons of founders and teams. And if there are <coughs> ones that are building, you know, that I that I click with and that are building something that resonates with me, I get super excited about it. I, I wouldn't have told you, you know, I invested in a consumer hardware company. I've invested in a women's feminine product company. I've invested in a shipping and logistics company. I can honestly say I was not out searching for products in those three markets right off the bat, right? But the teams and the people were just really compelling and got me and my partners excited. So going further on that, and without picking any favorites or anything like that, I was just wondering if there were some deals or some startups that you've been a part of that you might be able to tell us a little bit more about. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I've done a number of deals that are public, um, and they're all going well. I mean, I've only been doing this for two years, so it's it's early days as I have come to learn that this is a, a game, you know, sometimes that it can be long and um, you got to be there and supportive for these companies and entrepreneurs and can't be impatient. You got to be patient. And um, so, yeah, I mean, there's been a variety of companies. I mean, I, I led our investment in Medium, which, you know, is not surprising. That one, you know, since I worked with Ev at Twitter, it's fun to be, again, thinking about the future of media and content and publishing on the Internet. That's exciting. I mentioned the shipping and logistic company. That's a company called Haven. And they focus on and creating a platform for ocean freight shipping containers so that commodities traders and shippers around the world can lower their costs of doing business and you know operate more efficiently and kind of disintermediate the existing systems of brokers that were have been there for a long time the company Lola is the one I mentioned about the feminine product company two awesome women entrepreneurs Jordana Kier and Alexandra Freeman, uh, based in New York, that decided that the women's feminine products business were run by big corporations, kind of an old, stodgy message and brand. So they wanted to create a new, fun brand that was really approachable to women and build and create a product that was uh, transparent and organic. So just a great company and a great message and trying to change the conversation about a part of a woman's life that people are afraid to talk about. Awesome. That's really cool. We'll make sure that we link to those companies so everybody listening can go and check them out. So on more of a personal note, what have been some of the most impactful moments of your career so far? I mean, I think there is thing that I am constantly searching for and the things that stand out to me is in my past, I've been very fortunate to be part of two startups that went from less than 20 people to thousands of people, went public, were big, big, important companies. That feeling of certainty I, I had working at those companies that these founders and these leaders were the, exactly the right people with the right vision and we had the right products at the right time to like change the world is an incredible feeling and I felt it now you know I've been part of it twice which is very fortunate so that's you know the most transformational thing to me because I feel like I have an idea in my head of what that feels like and what it's seen and the characteristics of that and I'm just constantly on a search to to replicate it more and more times over yeah absolutely 
So on the note of growing companies with big missions, what have been some of the most impactful tools that you've either come across or keep coming back to? Ever since I I got the AirPods, it's changed my consumption, content consumption. And so my most useful tool right now is podcasts. I just try to consume as many podcasts as possible. And it doesn't really relate. I mean, I have some shows that I really like. I mean, I love the NPR How I Built This, where they interview founders of these amazing companies across all kinds of categories. You listen to that one? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great show. I love listening to it. It's a great show. I I think that whenever I see a podcast that has a guest that I want to hear about or a subject that I want to learn about, I've just become voracious in consuming this audio content because it's it's really, it was great for me because I walk around the city a lot. I'm in transit a lot and I can use it and I, I can consume it in that downtime versus sitting in a place and reading something because that, that just doesn't fit as much for me. So that's been the most transformative tool for me. Absolutely. They are pretty cool devices and, and it'll be really interesting to see how they change, not only listening to podcasts, but how we consume other forms of communications or media. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have any final thoughts or personal models to share with other entrepreneurs out there? I think people need to do what feels natural and right for them and build the companies that they want to build in the timeframes and the style that they want to build versus believing that there is one blueprint that fits every company that exists. What might be right for one company is not right for the other company and one style of management or one style of organization is not universally applicable to every different company. And I'm constantly telling people that because I feel like people want to say, what should I do? Give me your, you know, how do, what have you seen that works? And I, and my answer is always, I've seen a bunch of different things that work. And usually they work because of the DNA and the characteristics of those companies are unique. And so they require unique strategies that work for that company in that situation. Awesome. What a great way to end the episode. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us a line. Hey, at hack to You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding hack to start on Apple podcasts, breaker audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.